Well, thank you all, and it is my honor to be with you today. I bring you greetings from Yazoo City, Mississippi, where the heat index yesterday was about 110 degrees. And uh, so I'm trying to bottle up this weather when I leave this afternoon and take it home. Uh, it's just going to be a rude awakening tonight to land in Jackson and know that it'll probably still be uh, 85, 90 degrees at least at that point. So if you have your Bibles, join us in 1 Samuel chapter 13 this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 13. I want us to talk about waiting today and the art of waiting. We come to 1 Samuel 13. Samuel has anointed Saul as king. Uh, Saul was supposed to be everything that we see David is. He was supposed to be the one after God's own heart. He was the one that Samuel first goes to anoint, and he's supposed to lead God's people, and he messes everything up. And we see that here in 1 Samuel 13 for his refusal to wait. Join with me in verse 1. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel 42 years. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 were with him at Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeon in Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Gibeah, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, Let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Best Avon. When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical, and that the army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets, among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal. Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offerings. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering, and that you did not come at the set time, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would, would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people, because you have not kept the Lord's command. Then Samuel left Gilgal and went up to Gibeah and Benjamin. And Saul counted the men who were with him. They numbered about 600. Forrest Hunter is one of my heroes. I've never met him, but I heard his story. He stopped in his local Walmart in Kentucky to buy a hunting license. He went to the sporting goods department. And nobody was at the counter. And he waited. And he waited. And finally, what makes him my hero is he picked up the phone that was lying there. He died, dialed excuse me, into the intercom system, and he made the announcement, Customer needs assistance in sporting goods. I am the customer. <laughs> I love that story. 
Walmart builds these huge buildings and they're shiny and they've got all these registers and they open up two or three of them. And then I go to Walmart and I have to wait. And I stand in line and I stand in line and I keep standing. And for time's sake, I won't tell you how long I have to keep standing. And I am reminded of my hatred for waiting. Prior to coming to Edge City, I lived in a one red light town. You've heard of all those jokes. I, I lived it. The red light changed every minute whether it needed to or not. And every time I was coming through, it would change. And you don't think a minute's very long until you have to sit and wait a minute. Put a minute on the microwave and just stand there and watch it. You never think a minute is going to pass. I hate to wait. And then God requires us to wait many times. You may find yourself in a waiting period, in a waiting room today. Maybe you're waiting for... Mr. or Miss Wright, you're waiting for God to open up a door for ministry. You're waiting for God to answer a prayer. Maybe you're waiting for some need that in your life that needs to be met. You're waiting for a grade to come back. And maybe you're waiting for a medical tests to come back. You're waiting for this sermon to end. You're, you're <laughs> we wait. We know that one way in which God answers prayers is to tell us to wait. But there's other instances in our life where we wish that God would hurry up and speed the pace up. Pick it up a little bit, God. We would probably want to yell out to Him. And I used to say proudly that I was not a patient person. I thought I was till I had children. And I had an infant that would never sleep and never quit crying. I realized I'm not patient. And I would chalk it up by saying, you know what, patience is a virtue, and I just don't have that virtue. Until God convicted me, no, patience is a spiritual gift. Or no, a spiritual fruit, excuse me. And we only exhibit those fruits as we walk in step with the Spirit. And so we don't ask God for patience, we walk with God and develop patience. We stay connected to the vine, and God began to work that in my life. I wish I could say that I'm there. I'm not, and I don't believe I will be until He takes me home. I struggle with waiting. struggle with Things going slow or maybe not going at all. So I can relate to King Saul in this passage. He's told by the prophet Samuel to wait for seven days. You wait seven days, I will be there on day seven. I will offer up the sacrifice. And so he waited. And he waited. Day seven came. Good job, Saul. You've waited. He looks around and Samuel is not there. Saul thinks, I've got to do something. So he takes the sacrifices and he offers them himself. And when he did, he lost the kingdom. God took away his kingdom and he sought a man after his own heart. Samuel told him, you have done a foolish thing. So we know then, the flip side of that is it's wise for us to wait. I want us to look this morning on what it takes, or some characteristics as we wait on God. The first one I see is that when we wait on God, we have to commit to complete obedience. You know, it's a tendency when we're waiting on God to forget what we're supposed to be doing. We become so preoccupied with the wait and what we hope will happen that we forget what God has already been clear about. See, in chapter 10, if we were to go back there, we see that Saul is a very reluctant leader. He doesn't want to be the king. He doesn't want to be the one chosen. He's hiding out in the supplies. 
And they're looking, where's the guy that, that Samuel came and anointed king? Where is he? Oh, he's hiding back in the supplies over there. He really doesn't want to be out front. It was expected that he would attack the Philistine outpost at Gibeon. Some valiant men accompany him home to go do that. And it, it, it's likely that about a year has passed. There's some textual issues. We don't have time to look at in verse 1. But about a year has passed since he was, goes home to attack these people with men with him. And he's done nothing. His main purpose in king was to, as king was to lead God's people against the Philistines. And so he deploys two fighting forces. He commands the larger company while Jonathan leads the smaller group. And it appears that he divides them up. We see that in verse 2 that he sent their other guys home. He keeps 3,000. Saul's got 2,000. Jonathan's got one. And they're just camped out. And it appears that Jonathan decides, you know what, this is enough. God has given us a command. We're supposed to be attacking these people. I'm going to do it. And so we see that Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost there at Gibeah. And the Philistines obviously don't like that. And so they attack in verse 5 with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And Saul's got 3,000. He sent the rest of the guys home. Did you catch it? For a year, Saul did absolutely nothing. And it appears that Jonathan got tired and took some action. Some say it's possible preparation for some action of some kind. That's not what we, that Saul was making preparations for some action of some kind, but that's not what we see. That's not what God expected from his words in chapter 10. He was supposed to do that immediately. See, Saul had a problem with partial obedience. He thinks he can wait a year, and now he's supposed to wait seven days for Samuel's arrival. At that time, the prophet will make proper sacrifices to prepare for the war. And the text plainly says that Saul waited seven days the time set by Samuel. So in this, Saul is obedient. But when Samuel doesn't come at the expected time, Saul proceeds to make other arrangements. It's possible that Saul offers a sacrifice during the morning sacrifice period. And then Samuel arrives. So he arrives on the seventh day. He just doesn't get there early enough. And when he showed up, Saul probably thought, Woo-hoo, he's finally here. And he goes to welcome Samuel. Samuel looks at him and says, what have you done? We could say that the denouncement was because Saul intruded into the role of the priesthood. I don't believe that's correct here. because We see where Samuel and Solomon both make similar sacrifices and they don't receive the slightest reprimand. The issue here is that Saul second-guessed the clear instruction of God to wait for Samuel's arrival. He partially obeyed. And one of the things I've learned as I've journeyed with Christ is that partial obedience is always disobedience. I really learned that at at home growing up because there were certain chores that my brother and I had to do. My mom would leave a note that laid on the bar every morning and it was usually unload the dishwasher and fold the white clothes. So t-shirts and socks. Now, I'm a big fella. Folding one of my T-shirts is like folding a tent. And it, nobody wanted to do that. My mom didn't, so that's why she had two boys, right? And so whoever got up first chose to do the other chore, no matter what it was. You know, most of the time, unloading the dishwasher, putting something up. If you got up first, you claimed it. So you knew all day long at school that you had to fold the white clothes. 
That note was laying there when we got home, but we had time. And so we would go out and play after homework was done. My dad would usually get home first, and there would be that reminder, boys, don't forget whoever's supposed to fold these clothes better get them done. Yes, sir. We had time. And then you would see mom's car turn down the road. An eternity passed as you tried to run inside and start that process. And then when she would walk in and want to know why that had not been done, but I'm doing it now. But when was it supposed to be done? Before she got home. Partial obedience, I learned then, was disobedience. And the same is true in our life. God, surely you don't mean I have to forgive somebody 70 times 7, right? Or just even 77 times? And God, surely you don't mean this stuff of take up your cross daily? No, I'll take up my cross, but every single day I've got to sacrifice myself? And God, surely you know, this, don't mean this stuff about complete purity, do you? I mean, I'm not sleeping around, so surely I can look at what I want to look at right? And we begin to make all these excuses. Partial obedience is easy when we can pick and choose what we want to obey. But God expects for us to obey Him completely. That is in the essence of obedience, by the way. So how do we do that? Secondly, we have to remove the focus from our current crisis. So as long as we focus on the things around us, we'll come up with all these excuses of why we don't have to obey. See, Saul is pressured. There's the enemy. The pressure is growing. And his men are beginning to scatter. They're taking cover under every conceivable hiding place we see there in verse 6. Right? In caves and thickets and among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Saul is looking at his 3,000 men and they're being reduced. We see at the end that he's got 600 with him. They're They're running. Verse 7 says they are quaking with fear. It appears as if all is lost. And there they're looking to Saul, who's been directed to wait seven days. Seven days pass. Day seven arrives. And Saul caves into the pressure that he felt. He looks and says, the prophet didn't show up at his deadline. My men are scared to death. They're deserting me. And then he has the burden of feeling the need that I've got to do something quick. And it exposed a character fall in Saul. See, it was crisis time. And Saul forgot that God had already promised him victory over the Philistines back in chapter 9, verse 16. Saul was the one that God selected to deliver Israel from the power of this long-standing enemy. And it's for such a time as this that Saul has been made king. But he allows the circumstances of the moment to swallow him and to swallow his vision of what God has in store for him. All because he focused on the crisis. See, when we're waiting for God to work, waiting for an answer to prayer, waiting for God to move, we begin to look at our situation. Maybe it feels hopeless. We've got to do something, we tell ourselves. We have to take our attention off of that and put our attention on the one who gives us the strength to wait. Stories told, my favorite story, a little first grade boy who had gone to a half-day kindergarten. So every day he left at lunch. First grade, he had to stay all day long. Well, that first day, he didn't understand that. So at lunchtime, he's packing up his stuff to go home. 
the teacher comes and says, you know, we, you have to stay all day. You're a big boy now. You, we're going to be here until the end of the day. You're going to eat lunch here. We're going to come back this afternoon. We'll have some recess. We're going to learn some more. We're going to do some more work. He was having a tough time comprehending all this. And she finally calmed me down and said, just put your stuff up. Your mom packed you a lunch. We're going to get that. We're going to go in the cafeteria, and we're coming back here at the afternoon. Is it, you understand this? And he looked at her with teary eyes and said, who signed me up for this anyway? <laughs> you know, and oftentimes I wonder that if we feel that way as believers. God, who signed me up for this forgiven 70 times 7? Who signed me up for taking up your cross daily and following it? And Lord, who signed me up for turning the other cheek when somebody wrongs me? Who signed me up for this? And we begin to live rather than by feelings, by, excuse me, by faith, we live by feelings. And we see the crisis that's there, and that crisis causes us to do some things that, as Samuel says, are foolish. See, Saul allowed the circumstances to overtake him, and it ruled him ineffective in God's service. So whatever circumstances you're facing today, whatever crisis is about to overtake you, take your focus off of that. Let's look to the one who gives us the strength to wait. Thirdly, we have to refuse to blame others when we fail. Because we're going to fail, we're not going to wait perfectly. We often fail in that waiting time. We make quick decisions. We get short-tempered. We get frustrated, like waiting in line at Walmart. And Saul has been caught with his hand in the cookie jar. And as Samuel asked him, what have you, or you have done a foolish thing here? What have you done to start with? He starts stammering to exonerate himself. He doesn't accept the blame. He starts putting it off on others. Well, my troops were leaving me. You didn't show up on time, and the enemy is gathering. And he begins to rationalize his decision, which, by the way, rationalizing is just making up rational lies to excuse our behavior. Saul offered his assessment. He fears that the, that the Philistines are going to descend on him, and because he has not offered or has not sought the Lord's favor, he offers up this meager excuse, I forced myself, I, I was compelled to offer the burnt offering. He believed that he could obtain the Lord's favor while compromising his obedience to the Lord's words. And by his actions, he confessed that certain emergencies render God's word unnecessary. And he shows us the process of how sin is birthed in our life many times. That we have an urgent circumstance, we have pressure from others to do something, we have an insecurity because of the lack of reliance that we have on God, we may even seek the counsel and advice of others, and then finally we rebel through an act of compromising disobedience by making decisions and then asking God to bless them. And then we begin to point the fingers like Saul did. So many times we shift the blame. If my parents had not fill in the blank. If my teacher had not, if the expectations weren't so high, if my boss would, if God had not made me this way, and every one of those, we point the finger at somebody else rather than accepting responsibility for our failure. I don't know for sure, but I, it would line up with the character of God that had 
Samuel says, what have you done? And Saul says, I've messed up. I didn't wait. And then repented or confessed that sin and saw some repentance and change in his life. Maybe God would have relented as he does other places in Scripture. We don't know that because Saul doesn't do that. He points fingers constantly. And it's easy again for us to do that. But we need to point those fingers at ourselves. Realize that our failure to wait starts with us. Lastly, if we're going to wait properly, we have to be motivated by our calling. Saul had no qualms, appears, about telling Samuel about the sacrifice. He's not ashamed of it. To him, his circumstances dictated an immediate response. And he hears the words, you have done a foolish thing. Basically, Samuel's telling him that none of your arguments excuse your disobedience to God's clear command. His reign as king, which began with so much promise, crashes immediately then, and he lost the opportunity of a lifetime. Now, outwardly, he had all the desirable traits of the king, but he offered only lip service to the Lord. Rather than being motivated by his calling, which he didn't even want to begin with, he was motivated by the flesh. Dr. Ballard told you, I surrendered to God's call in my life preach his word when I was 13. I don't know what that looked like. But I knew then as a seventh grader what God was calling me to do. And that has motivated everything for the next 27 years of my life. And it'll continue to motivate what I do. And I pray that I never get over that call of God upon my life. But that's not, that's a great call. But the greatest call was the call to salvation that He gave me when I was nine, when He gave me the opportunity to surrender my life to Him. And again, at nine years old, I didn't know what that looked like completely. But I knew that I was a sinner in need of a Savior and that Jesus was that Savior. And I gave my life to Him. And that has been what I've lived my life by. So I have to consider the call of God upon my life as I wait. God, am I bringing honor and glory to Your name? God, I'm, I'm waiting here. I want to wait patiently, so let me be connected to the vine so that I can get the strength that I need. So I ask you to stop and to consider your calling and never get over the fact that a holy God would call an unholy man and woman. But never forget the fact that God always comes down to us and He works in our life and He calls us. And we look at a passage like this, and it may seem like, God, that's pretty harsh, you know? A harsh and unfair punishment. But Samuel recognizes something in Saul that's going to continue throughout the rest of his story. And that's that Saul is content to rely upon his own resources rather than to lean on God's Word. See, this text is about learning to trust God when you see your own resources slipping away. It's about learning to trust God, though, even when you think your resources are sufficient, when you think you can handle it alone. And perhaps that's when we need to look at Him even more completely. December 2001, George O'Leary got his dream job. He was hired as the coach, football coach at Notre Dame. He'd been at Georgia Tech where he had won and had given him this opportunity to be considered for this job. 
He goes to the interview process. He's hired. They had the press conference. Notre Dame fans are excited. The rest of us groan. And two days later, there's a press conference held to announce the firing of George O'Leary. He hadn't played the first game. He hadn't signed his first recruit. But he lied on his resume. He padded his resume saying he had degrees and experience that he didn't have. And as the media began at that time, even more so now, to scrutinize that resume, they found out that there were lies that Notre Dame believed were true. George O'Leary faced the crowd that day, and he called it himself a selfish and thoughtless act. And that day, he lost the opportunity of a lifetime due to his choices. And we do the same when we have selfless and thoughtless or selfish and thoughtless acts. And we're not willing to wait on the Lord. We lay our calling aside. And we allow our flesh to take over. And we find ourselves not motivated by our calling. And we will lose opportunities. And it may look like that this is an unjust punishment. But we have to remember, that's not our call. And there's no little sin because there's no little God to sin against. As a pastor, I spend a lot of time with people in a waiting room. Many times in a hospital waiting room, about the size of this, chairs all around the wall, and chairs in the middle and certain cubicles, it all depends, set up. But there's some people who wait jokingly, their loved ones in for a what they consider a minor procedure. They'll be out in an hour or so, and they'll spend an hour in recovery, and then they'll go home, rest for a couple of days, and they'll be fine. Other families, maybe you're facing brain surgery, a small lack of precision can be detrimental, and they're concerned, they're quiet. They're staring at the floor most of the time or looking at the wall. They're not joking around. And I love to watch people, and so it's there that I sit in the room and just watch the various responses of how people act. Whether there's panic or there's faith or there's laughter or there's pain there that day. And as believers, we find ourselves in the waiting room many times. Again, waiting for God to answer a prayer, waiting for God to open a door, waiting, waiting for God maybe to present a ministry opportunity, waiting for God to remove some pain in our life, waiting for God to strengthen us in an area of weakness. We wait a whole lot. And from Saul, we learn how to act in that waiting room with a complete commitment to obedience. Motivated by the calling that God has placed on our life. To simply wait for the Lord. Today, will you, wherever you are, whatever situation you're facing, simply be willing to wait. Let's pray together. Holy Father, today we lift our eyes to heaven and focus upon the author and the perfecter of our faith.
I ask you today, Lord, that you would help us to wait and to wait correctly. God, maybe there are students here, faculty members here today that are struggling with the wait. And I pray you would remind them of the truths of this passage. Let us remember that you are more than enough to give us what we need in this waiting period. So I pray you strengthen hearts today. I pray you would just help us to be content, to learn that secret as Paul learned, to be content where we are, knowing in your timing you'll show up. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.